is um, an important event on, uh, brought to you, I should say, by the LSE's Brexit programme run by the European Institute and the School of Public Policy. And uh, the event is entitled Coronavirus and Brexit, Two Cases of Quarantine. Um, I'm going to introduce these speakers in a moment. But for the time being, I just want to make clear that um, there is a Twitter handle, uh, which was on the screen that you saw at the beginning there. Uh, there is a, will be an opportunity for Q&A, uh, which you'll be able to see how to do that, uh, putting questions by clicking the Q&A button uh, and put your question in there, preferably identifying who you are and where you're coming from. And I should say the event is being recorded and uh, broadcast online. So welcome to one and all. And I'm going to say very briefly introduce the speakers who will speak in order, then we'll have a bit of a conversation after that, and then open it up in the normal way of an LSE event to uh, Q&A from uh, the audience. So uh, our speakers uh, this afternoon are Sir Simon Fraser, former Permanent Secretary to the Foreign Commonwealth Office and Head of the UK Diplomatic Service, uh, Dr. Sarah Hagerman, who's Academic Director of the School of Public Policy. Uh, Professor Christian Lequen, who is Professor at Sciences Po Centre for International Studies. And Professor Bridget Laffin, Director of the Robert Schumann Centre for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute. So um, what we're going to do now is to begin uh, with Simon Fraser. Uh, then we'll hear from Bridget, Christian and Sarah in that order. So. Over to you, Simon, uh, and thank you for taking part this afternoon. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting me to take part. Um, I think what I would like to talk about uh, by way of kicking off the discussion is to address this debate which has now uh, arisen in the UK as to whether, as a result of COVID-19, uh, the Brexit transition period should be extended. Uh, it's a debate which is gaining a lot of traction in recent weeks and I think will continue. Uh, and the uh, reason for that is that under the terms of the withdrawal agreement, any decision to extend that transition period beyond December this year needs to be made by the end of June. And the end of June is now quite near. Uh, and as we know, progress in the negotiations uh, on the uh, post-transition uh, relationship have been held up uh, because they, they have been paused because of the virus and have only just resumed in virtual form. So it is a really serious question and I think there are five main reasons why you might think it's a sensible thing to do to extend, um, uh, although the government of course has said it doesn't intend to. The first is, is purely the question of bandwidth. I mean, there is so much going on and governments on both sides and the European Commission have got so much on their hands uh, and officials and ministers are under so much pressure that simply there isn't time really to conduct a very complex negotiation of this sort. Secondly, and really linked to that, there are extraordinary practical obstacles now, simply physical obstacles in terms of conducting a negotiation. So in a negotiation, teams really need to meet they need to get together. There's a dynamic in a negotiation, which is really important. And I think if you try to do it virtually, you simply cannot really reproduce that. And certainly when you get to the difficult stuff where you're trying to crack through knotty problems and you need to do trade-offs in the corridors and things, uh, that's going to be very difficult. 
The third, uh, and probably the most important thing, actually, is the sheer economic case. You know, we are now looking at a very significant economic crisis, which is not just a matter of a few weeks. It is a matter of many months. And uh, the whole of the economy in the UK and across Europe uh, is uh, it's questionable how it's going to turn out uh, between now and the end of the year. So why in those circumstances would you uh, add to that crisis uh, an avoidable uh, denial of market access in the case of the UK, in the EU and vice versa, if actually uh, there's some way of, uh, of avoiding it? Seems to be irrational. Fourth point is, 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 is linked to that and is about timing. Um, but that uncertainty means that we don't really know what sort of world we're going to be facing at the end of this year. We don't know what the shape of the European economy and the British economy is going to be. We don't know what sort of measures we're going to be looking for in different sectors. So would, there's too much in, flu, in flux, really, for people to be able to make sensible decisions at this point, it seems to me. The logical thing would be to pause. And the fifth point is about the politics. Um, and I'll come back to this in a second. But clearly, the government has said in this country it doesn't want to uh, extend the transition. I think there may be a political window around June when we learn more about the impact of the virus for them to say, well, actually, the rational thing to do might be to pause it. Uh, but uh, and many people would think that would be a sensible thing to do, perhaps. Um, but uh, equally, I'm not sure that that's the way that they read the politics of it in the government. So, so despite those arguments that I've made for considering an extension, it's clear that the British government at the moment is digging in very hard in its position that it's not going to extend. It doesn't want to extend. It wants to deliver on this central manifesto commitment on which it was elected. Uh, and some people indeed are arguing in the government that actually the virus makes it more important to have an early uh, conclusion of this transition. Uh, partly because uh, the, the UK needs greater freedom and flexibility to respond to that uh, new situation rather than still being locked in the negotiation with Europe. And I suspect there are some people around the government who actually think it might be advantageous to sort of hide the economic impact of Brexit in the economic impact of COVID. And actually that might suit uh, that particular agenda. So I'm far from convinced that the government is going to back down from its present position. I am working myself on the assumption that they are going to hold firm to their timetable for the transition period ending at the end of this year. And therefore, individuals and businesses and everybody around Europe, in my opinion, has to continue at least to plan on that assumption. I'll leave my introductory comment there, Tony. Uh, Simon, thank you very, very much. Uh, I'm going to, as I said, move straight on to the other speakers and collect all of your thoughts. Um, so, uh, Bridget, perhaps you could now um, give us your introduction to the. Certainly. Uh, good afternoon from Dublin. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be part of this discussion on both COVID 19 and Brexit. I will use my introduction to cover four areas. One, the broad uh, EU agenda and Brexit. Secondly, COVID-19 and its impact on the negotiations. 
thirdly, the state of the negotiations. And I will say something about the withdrawal agreement in relation to the Irish protocol, because I think that's a, that is a, will be one of the big tests of the relationship. So beginning with the agenda, uh, Ben Rosemont in October 16 wrote that Brexit would become a defi- the defining political issue of European politics. Now, it certainly has become a defining issue for UK politics, but not EU politics. And that's because from the beginning, the e- Brexit mattered to the EU, but the EU has lots of other important agenda items. And in January of this year, having achieved political Brexit, the departure of the United Kingdom, the EU was looking forward to a medium-term agenda of uh, concentrating on the climate crisis, digital and the economy, and Europe's place in the world. And Brexit intersected with all of these, but Brexit was not a priority in terms of the medium-term, long-term EU agenda. But of course, the European agenda, the von der Leyen Commission, suddenly found itself fighting uh, COVID-19 and that, um, that unforeseen crisis that emerged virtually out of nowhere uh, this year. In terms of COVID-19, we shouldn't underestimate its impact both on the individual member states of the EU, but the EU more generally. It is, for some countries, a trauma. There's been an enormous loss of life. Uh, There has been a straining of health systems and clearly a very significant economic downturn. Uh, This economic downturn is much more serious than the next few months. If we look at what the IMF are saying, but also I attended a private briefing this week from someone in the Commission, they think this is two years. So the economic recovery is two years. It's not a number of months. And the EU now will concentrate, and its member states will concentrate all of their energies on that recovery. And they're already looking at European-wide responses, but there is, they're about to begin a very, very difficult negotiation on the MFF, a recovery instrument, a recovery fund. The, the stakes are extraordinarily high, both in terms of the amount of financial power, about trillion, 1.5, but also because of the divergences across the member states. So for the EU, Brexit really is in the second. It is not, uh, it is something that they want to complete this year, if at all possible. But as Simon said, the bandwidth for the European Council will be decisively with the response to COVID-19. The impact of that on the Brexit negotiations, in my view, are the following. One, the European Council is not going to be able to devote a lot of attention to Brexit. It's going to, a lot of its agenda will be on the recovery. Uh, Secondly, in terms of process, as Simon already said, when you have to resort to 40 video conferences like we're having today to negotiate a major international treaty, that's not easy. But I would also add, and I think this is something that uh, HMG need to begin to think about, and that is what kind of EU emerges from COVID-19 in the following sense. Firstly, they will use the recovery to drive digital and and the green agenda, if at all possible. And there will be the battle between short-term economic recovery and the long-term, but they will really try to use this as an opportunity. 
Secondly, at last week's European Council, both Macron and um, Merkel spoke a lot about supply chains, vulnerability and strategic autonomy. In other words, Europe will not want to find itself facing another crisis in the way it has faced this. And so I think you will have a review of the single market, supply chains, vital equipment, etc., etc. And it may not be advisable for the UK to be disconnected from those developments. In my view, there will be a new single market over the next number of years. On to the negotiations themselves. They are not going well. These negotiations, the two negotiating partners are very far apart on major issues. They're very far apart on level playing field. They're very far apart on the architecture of an agreement. They're very far apart on police and judicial cooperation. And they're very far apart, as we know. They haven't even started to talk about fish. But I know Christian is our expert on fish, so he'll perhaps talk more about there. So these negotiations are not going well. So we either face by June, unless there's substantial progress, including on fish, the default across Europe will be that this is a no-deal exit. In other words, we are heading for a very difficult autumn where there'll be a lot of high-stakes politics, but the EU will not move from some of its core principles in order to accommodate the United Kingdom and therefore we will have a period in the autumn where uh, there will be a lot of nervousness, particularly for business, because they're already facing COVID-19 and they would then have to face, uh, they would then have to face further disruption because of a, a no-deal Brexit. And finally, on the uh, Irish protocol, the, archi- the governance architecture of the withdrawal agreement is in play. Today, the Specialised Committee on the Irish Protocol is meeting. It's interesting that seven member states are observers of that meeting. Germany, France, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Greece, not just the Irish, are participating today. Why? Because they see this as a test case of the commitment of the United Kingdom to honour the withdrawal agreement and to put in place appropriate governance structures for what is a very delicate border for uh, the EU. I would end by saying, if, and I think they're probably, I don't think the British government is going to change other than um, other than Johnson does uh, an about turn uh, very close to the end. If if the UK does not change and opts for a no-deal Brexit, and that adds to the disruption of an already disrupted economic environment for the whole of Europe, and the United Kingdom ends up causing more difficulty for its neighbours at a time of acute sensitivity, I think it would take a very long time to repair the relationships with the UK's neighbours. I think there is, I sometimes feel, and I happen now to be in Dublin, but I uh, look at most of this from Italy most of the time now. But I think sometimes uh, there is, the UK is basically in another space uh, when it comes to its relations with its neighbours and its understanding of where it will be Uh, in the 
broader European family over the next five to 10 years. Thank you. Bridget, thank you very much. And that's two uh, distinct but complementary uh, presentations uh, so far. Uh, now, if we go over to Christian at Sciences Po. Thank you very much, Tony, and uh, hello, everybody from uh, from Paris or from the Paris area. I'm not exactly in Paris. I'm 50 kilometers south uh, in Fontainebleau. Um, well, I can I can only agree uh, on what has been said about uh, the uh, negotiations by uh, by by Bridget. And what strikes me when I see the debate on this side of 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 the channel is that. Now everybody is working on the hypothesis that uh, they will have no extension. So everybody, of course, would prefer an extension, but consider that the British government is not going to go in, uh, in uh, this uh, direction. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, the chance to have a no deal or a small deal are, are, are very high, but uh, everybody now is working uh, uh, on this, uh, on this hypothesis, on this uh, uh, assumptions. Um, if you look at the uh, negotiation, uh, well, we are far from uh, uh, compromise on most of the of the topic. Uh, fish has been, uh, fishery policy has been uh, 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 mentioned, but even the structure of the treaty, even the structure of the treaty, we 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 have a we have for the moment no agreement between the UK delegation and the and the EU uh, delegation, and there is a question of trust, and uh, I, I I really agree. Uh, the um, the Irish protocol is uh, is is a test, and and the question is not uh, are we going to have an EU office in Belfast or not. Uh, the question is uh, uh, what about a partner who uh, says that uh, is going to uh, uh, respect a certain number of commitments, and then has declarations saying, well, you know, guys, uh, uh, we are going to have a minimal implementation of what we said, etc. It's 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 terrible in terms of uh, uh, well trust in the in the in the negotiation and and uh, Brexit uh, and it has been said already well becomes less and less a, a priority for for the Europeans and uh, it's here that there is a a, a connection with uh, with coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus is really the topic we are we are dealing with uh, for for the moment uh, everywhere. Um, let me say that the first reflex uh, we had uh, uh, towards the, the the pandemics was a very national reflex, and then uh, we went slowly to a reflection on uh, European solidarity. Medical solidarity worked much better than. Uh, Public opinion uh, usually thinks. If you, if you take the number of patients, for instance, which were uh, um, well uh, uh, saved by uh, uh, hospitals and uh, intensive uh, uh, units uh, in other member states, is quite it's quite impressive. And we we know we know that in France because uh, we we had a lot of patients uh, uh, in German hospitals, for 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 instance. But now we have we have the most important question which is the management of the economic consequences and this is what will be at the heart at the core 
of the uh, EU uh, agenda. Uh, we just got uh, uh, this morning figures uh, about the French GDP. In one month, we had a decrease of 5,8% of the GDP, just as a consequence of the, of the, of the lockdown. And uh, of course, the situation is very difficult in Italy. The situation is very difficult in Spain and most of the, of the EU member states. Uh, and uh, all the energy will be now focused on the question of, uh, well, how to find uh, an acceptable uh, European recovery plan. We know that uh, there are differences in the instruments that... Uh, uh, shall be used. Of course, the, the proposal made by uh, Macron and some others, head of state of government on Corona bonds, was not uh, uh, really acceptable by uh, uh, Germany and uh, uh, most of the uh, uh, northern uh, European countries. But there are other instruments. Uh, and uh, what Madame von der Leyen now has to do is to uh, uh, find a, 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 well, a good way uh, to put on the table uh, um, a, a European recovery plan, probably linking uh, the recovery to the financial perspective 2021, 2027. But this is what will be the priority of uh, of the of the of the Europeans of the of the 27. And I I don't think Brexit uh, will be so important for 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 the rest of Europe now. So um, accepting, accepting, unfortunately, a no deal, well, is something. Uh, well, um, most probably of the uh, of the of the European governments are prepared are prepared to do. Let me just say one thing about because this is for me a mystery, and maybe we can uh, uh, um, deal with that in the uh, in the exchange afterwards. What what strikes me is uh, the reaction of the British business. Uh, we have the impression that uh, this uh, Johnson government, you know, uh, because of the 80 seats of majority in the uh, House of Commons, has an enormous power and uh, considers that he has legitimacy, uh, well, to, to, to decide about what is good. But what about the business? What about the business interests, and especially the relationships between the business community in, uh, in the UK and, uh, and the Conservative Party? Uh, this is something very, very striking when you, when you look from outside. You would expect much more reaction from uh, uh, the business community, which has absolutely no interest to go uh, uh, for a no deal. I stop here. Uh, thank you. Okay, Christian, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, now to uh, Sarah. Thank you very much. And uh, hello to all of you uh, from Copenhagen. It sounds like we're almost uh, news reporters here from, from different locations, but uh, I've, uh, I've uh, gone from London to Copenhagen and had a very big... Uh, change in the experience of living um, the COVID uh, restrictions, uh, the great differences between countries, uh, certainly, and, uh, and that's, uh, that's observable for me uh, and my family. Anyhow, um, I'd like to, to simply elaborate on some of the points that have been made here. I, I think that a lot of, of um, important uh, issues have already been addressed. 
Um, but I'd like to sort of bring perhaps um, the the broader perspective uh, back into to our discussion by saying that we are at the very beginning of the COVID uh, uh, um, virus and its implications, and potentially there will be new waves um, uh, in the autumn, and and we we simply don't know what's to come. Um, uh, after these first initial um, uh, hits uh, by by the coronavirus, uh, and much of the um, uh, focus, of course, have been on the containment and the health implications. Whereas we are in uh, the recent weeks starting to see the social and economic implications um, uh, really develop, and uh, and that is what we need to keep in mind when we are talking about the Brexit uh, negotiations, because of course. Brexit started a very long time ago, um, and that was in reaction to an EU that looked very different to what it does today and indeed to what it will look like uh, in six months' time, in a year's time, and so forth. And um, what is remarkable, though, is that the British position and the British um, uh, approach to to the negotiations um, have uh, not changed in 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 uh, in parallel to these developments, nor have the EU side, because the EU side um, set out its uh, main priorities and um, uh, and its red lines um, uh, from the very beginning, and they have been they have been pretty um, uh, coherent and consistent throughout all of this, uh, with some uh, changes over time. But nevertheless, the main objectives stand, in particular with regards to securing the four freedoms uh, and the let's say integrity of the union. And this is a is a is a key uh, guiding principle for these negotiations, which. Uh, are only becoming more um, important to the EU as the as the Corona situation also develops and as the economic and social fabric of Europe will change. And so, um, uh, the British government, with a narrow focus on the on the, on the Brexit negotiations and specific outcomes from these negotiations. Uh, will put itself in a corner if there is not this broader understanding and it has indeed put itself in a corner on several occasions and many would argue that's where we are today. But I think it's extremely important to, to, to stress how drastic the changes are for Europe um, that, the, that we're witnessing at the moment and that we can expect in, 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 in the coming year. Um, partly because of of the direct uh, hit that we will see within countries on uh, inequality levels, unemployment situations, etc. But of course, we need to remember that the EU is also surrounded by um, neighbours where the corona situation um, will have great impact for example, on migration and uh, refugee situations, um, therefore putting pressures again on Europe's borders. Uh, Britain historically has been a leader in Europe, whether as a member of the EU or outside of the EU. And I think that many of the countries that are now in uh, 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 facing these uh, corona problems and um, socioeconomic impacts from the coronavirus um, greatly regret, apart from the Brexit itself, that there is not the leadership 
in Europe to um, address um, uh, this historic um, uh, crisis. Uh, because, of course, when it comes to it, Britain has really been an ex extremely important player in finding economic uh, and political solutions when we have had crises in, in, uh, in Europe before. And that is not what we are seeing from this government uh, at this point in time. And I, I, I know from, from representatives from um, countries that have otherwise seen themselves as close allies to the UK, that they greatly miss um, the UK in this crisis situation. Uh, Christian referred to the differences and views between France and Germany. Of course, Britain would not necessarily be a key player in setting up such a um, the response units, etc. But certainly in brokering and finding solutions, the UK has always been part uh, um, uh, of, of, of negotiations. And, um, and that, is, that is just not at all um, the case this time around. Um, my second point related to this is that, you know, we also need to think about how the political landscape will change as a consequence of this. Um, with the response to the corona situation, there are granted to be new kinds of um, coalitions and uh, um, uh, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, even governance structures that that may appear from 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 this situation, and and the UK um, is setting itself um, very much outside of uh, influencing. Uh, the path ahead, whether as you know, complete external member to to the EU uh, or with some uh, uh, affiliation in the future, it certainly has an interest in um, in being closely involved with these discussions, and it's making no attempts uh, in that respect at a political level, at least. And so I think that uh, you know we 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 look at the the regretful situation. Many will say in terms of the economic impact of Brexit, but I think it's extremely important to also look at the political consequences of this. Um, and bear in mind that um, uh, in these crisis situation, not uh, coming in to 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 play a role and influence at the path ahead for the um, for the EU, um, Britain is also not um, uh, able to influence and, and, and actually um, uh, uh, foster relationship with a key partner, uh, regardless of its membership position. Um, the last thing I, I wanted to say here is that I think um, uh, Christian pointed to, to a point about the puzzling uh, absence of businesses and all of this, but my reading and and certainly um, and also how uh, I teach this uh, to my in terms of negotiations it's a negotiation situation of course um, to to our students at Ellis um, 
skin and a tomb that is really very much a traditional kind of political setup uh, and tactic, which um, perhaps is outdated uh, as uh, the, the borders between what happens in Brussels and what happens in London are very much blurred. Uh, we know what happens in Brussels, but Brussels also knows what happens in London and, and what the media will report on. But I think we certainly can um, uh, explain all of this um, with, um, with the very strong focus on domestic politics and public opinion that the government continues to have. And yes, it's puzzling that the government continues this strategy after having won a significant majority um, in Parliament, but it is clearly playing to public opinion and the tabloid even. Uh, in how it's presenting uh, its uh, very strong red lines and uh, um, uh, strategies at a time where that wouldn't normally have been seen as necessary at all. Um, this government could easily have gone out to say that it's a changing world, it's very, change, it's very drastically changing um, conditions, we are having to do what's best for the country and look at all options. Instead, they're doing the opposite and standing firm on the, on the red lines. But if this is a communication uh, position rather than necessarily a strong policy conviction, in my view. Um, I'll stop here. I have a, a whole range of, of other issues to, 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 to perhaps um, we can get back to into in the Q&A. Um, but I think that, you know, I very much agree with the prospects of an extension being very unlikely granted, um, the, the focus being elsewhere by the European leaders, but also um, by the very narrow focus on Brexit only from the British uh, government. Sarah, thank you uh, very much. Now, just uh, before I get going on some discussion here, let's say we've got about just under 500 people participating, which is more than any of our theatres would hold. So at least we're, this is um, better than having put people into queues or indeed overspill rooms. So there are some advantages of doing these kind of events in this way. Uh, Rosie uh, informs me that we have uh, speakers from, uh, sorry, people streaming the event from, I'm just trying to find this, uh, a number of countries around the world. If I can just find this again. Uh, Rosie, you'll have to send, uh, where are, oh yes, here we are. Palestine, Belgium, India, Poland, America, Ankara, that's Turkey, and Pakistan. So people from right around the world are, are listening to this. Now, having, uh, I should also remind you again that the, the hashtag for the event is uh, hashtag LSE COVID-19. So remember to use that. Now, um, one thing that's come up uh, in the discussion so far is the attitude of the UK government. And I think it's worth making clear, Simon will know this, is that actually, as in many countries, the UK government has benefited enormously in terms of public support as a result of its response to COVID-19, it's very, very popular. So it doesn't just have a big majority, it now has massive higher levels of public support even uh, than it did before all of this kicked off. Uh, secondly, um, I think that the argument that, which I think Simon uh, mentioned, that so great is the economic effect of COVID-19. We've heard about the figures from Christian about France today. 
These are impacts potentially in one month and certainly in a quarter in EU countries, bigger than the eight-year effect of a no-deal Brexit as calculated by the UK Treasury. Now, I'm not saying this is a sensible uh, basis for proceeding with no deal, but I did detect from all four of our speakers that there's a sort of consensus amongst them, at least as of now, that uh, no deal is the least unlikely option going forward and that there are severe challenges as a result of that, obviously adding to the dislocation caused by COVID-19 and in particular the ever unsorted out issue of the Northern Ireland Ireland border which uh, Bridget mentioned and actually if you'd like to say a bit more about that I think it'd be very helpful at least for me to hear more about that. Um, and beyond that Obviously, the EU now has its own severe challenges because of COVID-19, uh, particularly the issue of Italy and the financing of Italy's uh, uh, massively uh, developed deficit and the effect that that's had on its uh, ratings. So, um, so my, I suppose my, my final question, or my, sorry, my opening question, my final thought leading to an opening question for my panellists uh, is this. Is it possible, is it sort of legally possible, possible in any way, to have no deal, but because it suits both the EU 27 and the UK, a sort of temporary fudged, um, nothing much changing, even though there's been no deal? That is, is there a way of uh, smoothing over the fact that maybe no, other than the most basic deal, nothing much will have been sorted out by the 30th of June, the 30th of December. Is, that, is there any possibility of a sort of holding pattern respecting the fact that both the EU 27 and the UK are in this remarkable economic difficulty because of COVID-19? Is that possible in any way? Some fudged continuation of translation, but not calling it that. So can, can I say no? Right. Very clearly, because uh, effectively what it would mean is that the UK would have left effectively the treaties entirely. The transition period is over and all that would govern the relationship is the withdrawal agreement. So you can't run customs and VAT collection and all of that on a fudge. So uh, what both sides could do is take independent mitigating uh, strategies to, to develop them as they did in anticipation of no deal already to limit the downturn the downside but the idea that somehow or other uh, the first of january next year with no deal that the united kingdom would continue to be in the eu but not in the eu no that's uh, the, the eu rests on its treaties and it rests on uh, the international treaties it has with other countries, and the United Kingdom is now a third country. It is not a member state. Is that Simon? Come in on that. Yeah, thanks. Please. I mean, I, I basically agree with that. Although my 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 sense is, um, I think that transition is unlikely to be extended. It doesn't necessarily mean there's no deal. I think there could still be some sort of thin deal, sort of spatchcock, you know, put together, covering trade in goods. Uh, limited to certain uh, specific areas. And, uh, and in that case, there could be a deal when we leave of sorts. Very unsatisfactory, not really much more than no deal, but very limited. And in those circumstances, I have always thought 
that in the pra pragmatic world, what would happen is the Brit British would say, right, we're out. Uh, we finished the transition. We've got the deal. That's fine. And then the reality of life would be that negotiations would continue in sort of pockets on issues which needed to be resolved. There would be negotiations between the UK and the EU with the UK as a third country, but you wouldn't just fall sort of off the cliff edge and nothing else would happen. That seems to me to be unlikely. So I think there are sort of shades of grey, but Bridget's absolutely right. You've got to understand the legal basis of that is not going to be a continuation of the status quo as it is now. It's going to be a different legal basis from which we would have to resume negotiation and build a new relationship sort of from the ground up rather than sort of deciding how much we're going to dismantle it from the top down. Now, Sarah and Christian, you both, I think, uh, either by nodding or waving your hand, indicated you'd like to come in. Sarah first, then Christian. Well, just very briefly, and in, we have heard the EU side move on this because up until basically January, it was uh, very much an all or nothing. In January, we, we hosted von der Leyen uh, and Mr. Barnier at LSC before they met with Johnson for the first time as, uh, after the elections. And um, they surprisingly, to me at least, um, said that we will, we will cover what we can in the time that is available. But even at this point, the progress that they wanted to see and outlined um, in January, um, there has been no significant uh, progress in those areas. Um, they, there's still great concerns about the unwillingness to uh, seriously discuss um, a level playing field. And I think that um, the, the, it's also the approach to the negotiations which have been frustrating. We saw Mr. Banya the, the other day. Uh, say that it's, uh, we are simply repeating the same messages over and over again. And, of course, the fact that things are now done virtually uh, is, uh, uh, is no help either. So um, I think that, yes, uh, uh, some form of uh, deal in a few areas may be possible, but I'm not sure that we are even getting to that point because the consequences of not getting deals in a significant number of areas is, is simply too much for the EU to, to, to then agree that we can do something in, in, in parts of, uh, of um, areas related to trade, for example. But uh, I, I, we, 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 of course, have to see what happens. But, but um, uh, it's concerning, and the EU side is certainly concerned about the lack of uh, detail in discussions and the lack of uh, proposals from the, EU, uh, from the UK side in making things move forward. So, um, you know, time is running out uh, for, for, for even a, a thin deal to be reached um, and, and any prospects in that respect. I think one of the, before I bring in Christian, one of the difficulties about the clear sense of time running out is that because, and I think this will be true in all the EU countries and the UK, uh, COVID-19 so dominates the news, the space available, for even the slightest worry. I mean, today's event for me, if I can say, is it's sort of almost comforting uh, to be back talking about Brexit, uh, sort of familiarity of something we never thought we'd stop talking about. So I think that's, there's very little space in the media for a debate about this. But anyway, sorry, Christian, I, I interrupted your response. No, no, thank you, Tony. Uh, no, I j just want to say that uh, I, I agree with Simon that there is a possibility to have uh, a sort of 
small, or I don't know how to call it, bad, bad deal, but on the basis of another uh, uh, legal, uh, legal basis. But this is only possible if, uh, if the UK is prepared to uh, accept, uh, well, uh, a, a real negotiation, I mean, with proposal in the field of trade and in the field of fisheries, but I mean, in the, in the important fields of the, uh, of the negotiation. Uh, if not, if uh, we do not have progress in those fields, then I think we're going to, uh, to have a, 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 a no deal. Um, and, uh, and again, um, the, the debate about coronavirus after summer also will be very, very important. Uh, nobody knows what is going to to happen with the with the pandemic. We can have another peak during uh, the the summer period, and if every if all energy uh, is concentrated on that, then 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 uh, Brexit will not be uh, an important issue at the at the agenda of the of the EU uh, of the EU twenty seven. We uh, and in this case, I think uh, we uh, we could have just a no deal. Uh, um, so um, I do not exclude the no deal at all. And if I might just pick on that, oh, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's a mistake also uh, to think that this British government is, des- you know, in the end would, would definitely buckle and get a deal. I mean, I think there, they, would, they would accept no deal. In fact, I think there are some people in and around this British government who actually prefer no deal. Uh, I think the policy has always left that. As, uh, I don't think that's just an idle threat. And I think that's reflected in the posture and the behaviour in the negotiation. The British papers that have been put forward recently uh, in the last two or three months have been quite antagonistic on the whole, uh, uh, the tone of them and quite antagonistic on the whole thing. So it would be a mistake for us to assume that they think that no deal is necessarily a bad outcome. Uh, and that you know, one has to put yourself in the in those shoes to understand the posture. I think. I think just to add to that from the chair, Simon. I mean, I rather agree with that. That in fact, if you look at the composition of the current UK government, uh, in many ways, its members are chosen precisely because of their position on Brexit mm. or their response to the current prime minister. I mean, it's a it's, you know that's the. Uh, defining way in which the cabinet was put together and it's got a big majority recently won and as I said earlier a massive level of uh, public support. Now I want to come back to Bridget in a moment and by the way before I do this I want to encourage people to send in questions for the uh, panel uh, from now we'll be taking questions from the audience uh, and do say where you are coming who you are and where you're coming from if you can that would really be helpful in enlightening where giving us all a clue of where around the world or the UK you are and if you have an LSE connection or not. Uh, so I want to, to um, put Bridget on notice. I'd like her to say a little bit more about the precise issues raised by the protocol that you, you, you raised. But just for, for all of the panellists, I, I mean, what's about the impact? Uh, uh, there's, there's some stuff in the press at the moment about the well, how can I put it, the, the near freezing up of the global capital, the, the capacity of governments to raise money on the bond markets. Now, I'm going into territory I don't fully understand, if I'm honest here, but others of you will know more about this. Uh, if the, the threat of a no-deal Brexit, is that further uncertainty and insecurity making it even more difficult for governments that now act, need to access very large sums of money from 
you know, to support their own economies, uh, to mitigate the consequences of COVID-19. Is it going to make that a bit more difficult again? Have you got a thought on that? I realise we're not, uh, Simon. Well, I mean, I, uh, clearly the economic context is bad and it's going to get worse. I'm not sure that this, that the Brexit thing is actually going to affect um, the access to um, f f finance in that way, because what monetary policy, what central banks are doing now is basically flooding the market. I mean, they're buying everything else. I mean, the ECB has just uh, is going to extend, I think, its its scheme around purchase, bond purchase, and so but forth. So, so they're printing. It's quantitative easing, really. They're, so they, they, you're saying that it will yeah. because they're doing it that way. That has its own consequences, does it not? Well, it might in the long term, in terms of, the, but in the short term, I don't think it's going to. The Brexit is going to significantly affect uh, that dynamic, which is happening in any case. I mean, I think Brexit does, of course, create. It adds to the uh, economic uncertainty, the uncertainty for business. Uh, the point about business was raised earlier, and I did want to pick that up as to why business, uh, for a variety of reasons, including the sort that you're mentioning, is not um, being more vocal in the UK. And I think the answer on that is that business has tried several times. It's been marched up the hill on no deal and down again two or three times. And it's sort of moved on, frankly. And COVID is a much bigger set of issues it's dealing with. And I think business has factored in that it's going to possibly have to deal with, uh, respond to a no deal situation. Uh, and it'll come back to that if it has to. But at the moment, it's thinking about other things. Uh, and it, th th this Brexit debate is slightly going by default. The other thing is business is cautious. For the reason I've raised about the British government's attitude, business is cautious about engagement and certainly cautious about going to the government and saying this is wrong because it thinks that actually it will just get a counterproductive, that will have a counterproductive effect. I think, if anything, they're hoping that sort of the, the arguments will, will persuade the government of their own fate, and I'm not convinced they will. Okay, thank you. Now, Bridget, can you just uh, give us a little bit more of a, a, a meeting you discussed that's going on today and the, the, the precise issues that people in the EU are worried about? Because uh, I think uh, we hear a lot of, and rightly hear a lot about the uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland border and you're sitting in Dublin. But can you just sort of, un, uh, sort of open out the subject just a little bit more for those who haven't followed the protocol in quite the detail that you will have done? So in, in order to get a withdrawal agreement, basically Boris Johnson agreed to something that he said he never would. He agreed effectively to a border in the Irish Sea. In other words, an economic border between two parts of the United Kingdom. He did so because uh, there would have been no withdrawal agreement if there was a requirement to have a land border of any kind on the island of Ireland. That simply is not possible, not for the reasons most people think, oh, it's because the IRA or whatever. It's because the people who live on both sides of that border will never consent to the reintroduction of visible border controls ever again. So therefore, given that that's a, an EU border and not just an Irish border, then there have to be checks somewhere. Uh, you can't have a leakage from the UK single market into the EU single market by the back door. So the UK has got to establish customs checks between Britain and Northern Ireland. It's got to conduct phytosanitary checks 
for the whole, the whole range of phytosanitary checks for food, for livestock and all of that. So in order to implement the protocol, this specialized committee will have to, deci- will have to vet and decide on how the UK proposes to do this. Why is there concern and perhaps worry and, and lack of trust is because after agreeing, Boris Johnson also said, oh, there'll be no checks in the Irish Sea. There will have to be checks in the Irish Sea. That's what the United Kingdom legally signed up to do. The next set of issues is, how is the EU going to be assured that the UK will do what it said in the withdrawal agreement? And therefore, that's the, there is an issue about whether or not there should be an EU presence in Belfast. Well, I point out that China and the United States have consulates in Belfast. So if China and the United States have consulates, there is no reason why the EU. I think it's really telling that seven countries, including Ireland, but six other member states, are viewing and participating at that meeting today. Because it says to me that both France and Germany, the Commission, the Spaniards, will not allow Northern Ireland to be used as a backdoor into the single market. I think this creates enormous tensions and difficulties for business in Northern Ireland because it will, they will be treated differently to business uh, in, in, the, um, in, in GB. But that was the cost of the withdrawal agreement and frankly the consequence of Brexit because I reiterate there will never be a return to any physical border checks on the island of Ireland ever again. Okay, Bridget, thank you very much. Now, I've got some questions uh, coming in here from uh, those uh, sitting in the um, virtual theatre. And perhaps I can start with uh, one, or part of one comes in from Thomas Cole, ex-European Commission negotiator and uh, LSE alumnus. Um, Some of this has been touched on, but not all of it. So looking at the way in which negotiations are going, is it the case we are looking at a no deal on the future relationship. I think there's a sort of consensus on that. But he goes on to say, with negotiations continuing into the 2020s, that's another 10 years potentially, with both sides putting trade restrictions in place on the other in the meantime, and potentially in whatever future relationship ultimately agreed on. So are we going to see trade restrictions effectively from the 1st of January? I think, I think the answer is going to be yes, but Simon, go for it. Well, I mean, the answer is yes, by definition, uh, if, we, you know, if, if the transition ends. I mean, first of all, let's remember, we have left the EU legally. This is just about the continuation of the, of the conditions of membership for a year. If, if the transition ends, then trade restrictions, unless there has been a deal, um, uh, if there's a thin deal, then some trade restrictions may be avoided, but otherwise trade restrictions will be reimposed in both goods and services, uh, and other restrictions will be reimposed. And it goes, this is the point I was trying to make earlier. In that situation, you would go to a situation where the UK becomes a third country in its relationship with the EU, and then if there's a will on both sides to do it, picking up the earlier point that um, has been made about the, the, the sort of political mood that might um, be in place after such action, uh, if there was a will on both sides to do it, then you could start having a negotiation to remove the barriers which had been 
which had been uh, which clicked into place after we left, and that would be the only option we could have. And then over time, you would be building some sort of free trade agreement, uh, but from a position of much greater disadvantage for the UK in its relationship with its biggest market than we have now. So we would be starting from a much worse position. And uh, Sarah, perhaps to turn to you, I mean, um, you know, negotiations continuing into the 2020s with the implication they could go on throughout the 2020s. I mean, for any of you, how, how long might these negotiations then go on for? I mean, this has been discussed before and comparisons made with other deals that the EU has done with uh, third countries or blocs. So we're talking about years here, are we? Absolutely. Um, regardless of, the, of, of whether we have a, a, a deal, a thin deal or, or a no deal scenario, negotiations between the UK and the EU will continue for a very long time. Uh, the, the starting points of negotiations when we get to January will, of course, vary um, if the UK um, uh, extends its transition period. It's still with a view to securing a future agreement that uh, can um, be uh, either extensive or, or very narrow. We, 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 we still have uh, many options, uh, but it depends on, on the political um, uh, positions of, of both sides. And, you know, the, the, the EU side has, has uh, moved a bit, but, but not a lot on its priorities. Uh, the UK side is now firming up its pos uh, positions that it has also held for a very long time. And, and it's, uh, that's what I meant earlier in, in my uh, opening remarks that, you know, the world is changing very drastically at the moment. So it's, it's, um, it, from a negotiation strategy point of view, one could say that it would have been entirely possible to now say that we need to uh, perhaps think about different strategies and how to pursue these uh, and engage in these negotiations, but the government is doing the opposite. Um, and um, I'd just like to make one more comment to and what has, uh, has uh, been said about the barriers and linking this also to the position of businesses, because I think there's one thing we, 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 um, we have maybe uh, um, overlooked a bit here, which is that UK businesses have not necessarily been in favor of either staying in the EU or getting a deal. There are still a lot of, of even small and medium-sized businesses that have been uh, in favor of leaving uh, the EU because of the perception uh, and maybe the experience of being regulated mainly through EU law. And the expectation that that would go away has been... Um, hammered out by the politicians that this is the case for leaving the EU. Now, of course, um, even if leaving the EU, if you're trading with the EU, you have to follow the standards and regulations that are set by the EU. So that is a false promise that have been made in that respect, uh, certainly. Um, but I think that that, you know, it was just to elaborate on the points that were said earlier, that I think also th this would be uh, an explanation for why businesses have not been more um, uh, organized and, and, and vocal in their, in their position uh, here. They do um, uh, t share the view with the government that getting out of the regulatory that is set the EU 
um, is 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 a is an advantage to their to their businesses, and you know many will disagree with that, uh, uh, especially if you're trading into the single market. Okay, thanks for that. I want to move on. Actually, Christian, there's a couple of questions here that are aimed at, uh, at you. I, I um, just I just would like to go back. Okay, of course. Yeah, yeah, go. On. Sorry, uh, briefly on the question of the Irish protocol, because I've, I've, I've heard what Brigitte said about, well, no possibility to re-establish physical border because that will never been accepted by the uh, population of both sides. But if the British government is not respecting the protocol and if there is no control uh, between the two islands, so between Northern Ireland and the rest of the, of the UK, then what what is the EU going to do? What is, if, if, because I, I can imagine Macron with his very provocative style saying, well, you know, guys, if it's like this, we're going to reestablish uh, a border between the two islands, right? Uh, this, kind, this kind of thing is, 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 is absolutely possible in a discourse. So that would mean an, a new conflict, but this time with the Republic of Ireland. So how, how, how do you see a possible compromise, uh, Bridget, on this question? I say if uh, British-Irish relations were normalised with the visit of the Queen in 2011, and that's normalised after a very long and troubled history, it would be a historic, an error of historic proportions if the United, any British government ever destabilized the Irish government, the island of Ireland through its actions. So I think Dublin, so what struck me during the entire negotiations on Brexit, uh, there was all of this discussion about what happens if we have to have a border, etc., etc. I was very struck that the Irish government held its nerve right through those negotiations and it intends to hold them because the peace and stability of the island is so important and cannot be traded for anything. So my view is it really would be very damaging to the United Kingdom if it begins to play politics with Northern Ireland. If it does, I think the reputational damage to it across the world. And I say this, that in Cap on Capitol Hill, the Friends of Ireland group numbers 56. So the Irish would simply mobilize those diplomatic resources across the world. So yes, it would be extremely difficult for Ireland if, if uh, the UK does not uh, honor the protocol. But I think any British government, including this one, would think long and hard about the consequences. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, thank you for that, Bridget. Um, I've got a question from um, Tom Miles. Uh, Emmanuel Macron wants a P5 at the uh, permanent members of the UN summit on the future of multilateralism. Do you think the UK will spurn initiatives like this simply because they come from France? Uh, do you see any hope of global Brit Britain being more open to multilateralism? Simon, you were a UK diplomat, and then I'll ask you, Christian, what do you think about that question? Well, I, don't, I certainly don't think it would spurn the idea because it came from France. Uh, in fact, one of the things that the British government has said, and I, I believe them on this, is that you know, they do want to put effort into the bilateral relationships with countries like France and Germany, 
because they think that bilateral relationships are very important. I think myself that's fine, but that's missing the point that for France and Germany, the EU is a more important sort of context for their diplomacy than the bilateral relationship with the UK. But no, the, the British government, it's, the interesting thing about COVID is uh, that actually it has revealed to me in a way that doesn't surprise me at all, uh, the sort of dilemma for the British government of how it gets international traction uh, when it's outside, when it's standalone, when it's outside the EU. The British response on COVID has been very national, it seems to me, very inward looking. And normally uh, you'd see the British leading the sort of international debate with the Americans and the EU. And we haven't seen any of that. And I think that's sort of symptomatic of where we are as a consequence of the whole Brexit process and the mood in this country. Uh, I think the British would, you know, would support um, international moves to uh, develop multilateralism and multilateral approaches to the response to COVID and other things. They would have an eye on the Trump position. But actually, this government has not gone with the American position on many things in the foreign policy field since it came to power on Iran, on climate and on other matters. So it doesn't slavishly follow the US position, but have an eye on it. Um, so I think it would go along with it. The question is, what influence would the British government actually be able to have in that debate as compared with the influence it used to have in that debate? That, for me, is the interesting distinction that we need to look at. Great. And uh, Christian, I mean, um, do you think Macron has high hopes that Boris Johnson will join him in this kind of initiative? Because usually uh, France and the UK work relatively well, as I understand exactly. it, in the US. Well, I, I don't know if he has high hope, but he has probably hope uh, because, uh, well, uh, uh, one of the regrets of the of the French with Brexit is the precisely this question of cooperation on foreign policy issues. If you if you speak with the uh, with the French diplomats, uh, they will uh, they will tell you that. Uh, well, the uh, most reliable partner for uh, foreign policy and defense matters has been the Brits, has been the, the, the British diplomats, the British counterpart, and they, uh, they very much regret it. And it, it's true that if you take the, uh, uh, well, uh, um, important issues like uh, sanctions on Iraq, uh, uh, Middle East, but also Ukraine, the uh, British position was closer from the French and the German position than it was from the US position, you know, in the, in the, in the last years. So uh, probably he will try, he will try, and uh, if Boris says yes, I can imagine that Emmanuel will be very happy. Uh, okay, I've got a question now from, and by the way, uh, all the questions so far, I normally have to say something gently like this when we're in, 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 in real, real theatres. It'd be good to have one or two questions from female questioners. I've got a lot of questions from men here, so it'd be good to have some female questioners, which is not to say the male questioners are not very welcome. Tom Barton, who's a master's student at Royal Holloway uh, in London, University of London. Question for Christian. Given how differently member states have dealt with COVID-19 in terms of lockdowns and so on, how does the EU maintain a united front, which already seems to be under pressure, as seen in Italy, with uh, now over 40% of Italians appearing to support some sort of break with the EU? Italy clearly and its population not feeling um, terribly well done by by the EU so far in this crisis. Yeah. No, this is a very important question. Uh, and... Um, 
What is striking first is uh, there is a sort of discrepancy, a, a gap between the perception of uh, European solidarity uh, by the public opinions and what has effectively been done. Uh, I don't want to repeat what I said about the uh, medical uh, uh, um, uh, solidarity, uh, the number of uh, people who were uh, welcomed in uh, uh, hospitals of other member states, etc. We already have a package uh, which was decided on the 9th of, uh, of April of more than 500 uh, a billion euro, plus uh, the uh, intervention of the European Central Bank. But now we need to have a, 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 a more uh, coherent recovery plan and something which has to be publicized in the, in the public opinions because of course, the, the first challenge is economic. We're not going to, uh, to repeat what we said about the risk uh, on uh, uh, economies like the Italian, the Spanish, or the French one. But it's also a political challenge. Uh, um, if we do not go in the direction of uh, having a narrative on uh, uh, European solidarity, then it will give arguments to all the populists. And uh, you, can, uh, you can imagine uh, that... Uh, Madame Le Pen in my country, uh, Mr. Salvini in Italy, they are, they are prepared to, uh, to exploit this, right, uh, afterwards, to just say, well, you know, Europe, Europe, what, what has Europe done for us? Nothing. So this is why uh, we, uh, we, we need to have this plan. And, uh, and again, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, 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 a political, it's a political issue. Um, if not, if not, then uh, we will have a raise of the of the of the populist, uh, uh, and uh, this is a risk for all for all the member states of the EU. Sarah, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, it, it does seem to me that this is a sharp issue for the EU, which, as I said, it isn't hasn't exactly. Um, I mean, it's now trying to catch up with the challenge, but it's been very much an country by country response with the EU then finding it difficult as far as I can see to provide as it did earlier with Greece a sort of consistent package to support countries in the greatest need. Yeah I think it's very um, it's very important that we understand the the meaning of the solidarity here because of course the 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 what is really at stake is um, not specific to only one country or another. It's it's for all the member states to see what the incentives are for the collaboration that is ahead. And that's what will define the negotiations and why we see the differences in preferences or which kind of of solidarity packages we, we uh, that are now um, being discussed. So um, uh, there are very strong uh, interest uh, from the member states that are having the biggest trauma in terms of economic hit uh, as well as of course the, the health side of people actually dying but now the economic consequences coming in there, there are countries that are very hard hit and they need the immediate immediate rescue um, uh, um, uh, responses but but this will set a precedence for for EU collaboration going forward and that's what uh, you know Merkel and others are very aware of um, so they are trying instead to make use of some of the existing um, mechanisms that, in order to ensure that um, 
we don't have countries in particular, it's the northern countries uh, uh, sort of underwriting a a risk situation uh, which uh, cannot be managed uh, subsequently. And so um, the solidarity here is... is, um, is one that is certainly of a human solidarity and, and coming with, with the economic rescue packages, but it's also very much one that will define the kind of um, governance uh, and economic collaboration that the EU will be after this. So um, I, I believe that it's it's very likely that we are seeing um, the, the EU uh, being... Um, redrawn uh, to some degree, you know, as a consequence of this crisis and as a consequence of the collaborations that come out in order to respond to um, with rescue packages and longer term uh, uh, mechanisms as well. Um, but I just want to also mention one point here, which is that uh, Christian uh, brought up the issue of how populism and populist parties uh, may operate here. And I think that we need to to really uh, keep in mind how the governments are affected domestically uh, uh, by their standpoints uh, at the EU level. That goes with respect to um, helping out uh, on the Irish uh, situation as well. But also um, to so in Brexit in the Brexit um, uh, 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 category of the negotiations, but also in the COVID uh, uh, um, uh, negotiations or responses rather, sorry, uh, because of course a number of governments are facing direct pressure from populist uh, uh, parties, and uh, they are watching very carefully both the. Um, the developments and the government's handling of the COVID situation, but also what it is that the UK may or may not get out of this situation. And this continues to be an issue. I mean, in Scandinavia, we, we still see um, the populist uh, parties who are, have done really well and then declined quite significantly, but they're keeping a close eye still on what kind of arrangement the the UK will get at the end of this and whether there's anything to follow for for their countries. And I I believe that, you know, the populism that we've seen in Southern Europe, both on the right and the the left uh, side of the political spectrum, uh, of course, the inequalities coming out of COVID now, provide another opportunity for them to take a platform and to take a stand on uh, criticizing government handling and criticizing EU positions uh, here. So, you know, the political implications are are significant uh, uh, the whole way around, domestically and at the EU level. Okay, thanks very much, Sarah. Now, uh, we've got about 14 minutes to go. We will finish on time because... The events team at the school have another event, so uh, uh, we, need, we need to finish on time. Uh, and I've got uh, just um, Bridget mentioned in a kind of question about the US election coming up one after this one. So there's another big event about to uh, visit us. But from Anastasia, well, before that, Anastasia Yanidi, who's an MSc student in political economy of Europe at the LSC, who's joining us from Athens. So hello, Athens. Um, 
who's sent a question saying, given the fragility of the European economy and the pressing deadline of Brexit negotiations, is the EU actually likely to achieve more concessions than the EU negotiations, such as managing to keep passporting rights, since a no-deal Brexit would amplify the crisis even more? So it's a sort of, you know, is this the sort of cliff edge become an even more pivotally dangerous cliff edge uh, because of this massive COVID-19 hit? Which of my uh, esteemed colleagues would like to have a go at that one first? So I will go for it. If I may, so the UK is not going to get passporting rights. It was never going to get passporting rights. And it won't get passporting rights regardless of what happens COVID-19. I don't think the EU will break any of its core principles about level playing field, the governance architecture and the four freedoms in order to secure a deal with the United Kingdom. Uh, I don't think there's any indication that COVID-19 will make any difference whatsoever to that because from an EU perspective, what matters is that the integrity of the single market survives this and the balance between rights and obligations. So as a third country, you can't have more rights than the obligations you're willing to accept. So absolutely, absolutely not. But I I think, can I just go back on on Italy? Because there was a lot of discussion on on Italy. And I would like to say that firstly, Conte's uh, ratings are very high. He has a lot of political capital available to him now. Matteo Salvini, La Liga has reduced. And one of the things COVID has happily done for our world is to reintroduce the importance of expertise and actually knowing stuff. So I think in, yes, we've got to be careful that we don't overstate the dangers of populism in Europe today. Um, I would suggest that the EU will uh, develop a package for the economic recovery. And it's not that the EU collective will uh, do something for every country. Rather, those countries who, who are starting, who have either experienced COVID in a very serious way, like Italy and Spain, but also are highly indebted, the EU collective will recalibrate the available supports so that Germany can sort its own problems out, but that these countries that need support will get it. And I would like to emphasize the importance of a balanced recovery in Europe, because this is not an asymmetric shock. This is a symmetric shock that has come from nowhere. It's exogenous. uh, And therefore, it's nothing like the financial, uh, it's nothing like the financial crisis. As always, the EU won't do as much as it could do or optimally will do. But I think there will be a, a very strong collective response as this year as this year evolves. Okay, thanks. And Simon, you wanted to say something. Well, um, very, very briefly. I mean, from uh, th- this is th- if this question is, will the UK get more leverage because the EU will uh, will buckle or adjust its positions? This is, of course, you know, a, a, re- a revised version of the old David Davis German car manufacturer's argument. You know, we're more important to them than they are to us. And de- and of course, Michael Gove has resurrected it again this week in saying, you know. This is going to concentrate the minds of the Europeans. Um, I just don't think that's the case. Uh, I agree with Bridget. Um, I, I don't think the EU is able to do that. There may be pressure in some member states for flexibility, but the EU has to maintain a coherent position 
based on its treaties uh, and a collective position. And therefore, I think those uh, those who make that case in the UK, I think, are deluding themselves. Okay, now I want to move on to this question uh, from Keith Raffin, who's I know a regular attender at our event. Hello, Keith. Uh, several of the known unknowns between now and the end of the year have been mentioned, e.g. the possibility of a second wave of COVID-19. But on November the 3rd, we have the American presidential election. What impact of the panel think this could have if Biden wins? I mean, I think you can answer it either way, any of you, but um, and it was directed at you particularly, Simon, but I want any of our uh, panelists to talk. So, Simon, what about that? Well, I'm sorry, I just spoke, well, I'll speak very briefly. I mean, I don't think it's going to affect um, the position on Brexit if Biden wins. Um, I think we're, you know, by that time we'll be too far down the line. I think the really interesting issue, and that's beyond the immediate remit of this discussion, is how it will affect the broader issue that's coming out and the most important issue that's coming out of COVID, which is US-China and our, all our relations with China. And on that point, which I know is slightly beyond our strict remit, but it's so important. I mean, we must not think that the antagonism towards China in America is purely Republican and Trump. It is bipartisan. And therefore, I don't think we should expect a huge change in position. But the difference with Biden would be that his inclination would be to work with allies in Europe and others on the China agenda and on the other international agenda, going back to the multilateralism question. And that would be a very welcome thing for most people in Europe, and certainly for me. And that, I think, would be the principal difference. Uh, can I say that uh, if Donald Trump is re-elected as American president, I really worry for our world. I worry for international cooperation. I worry for Sino-US relations. It will be very hard and very tough and a very real prospect that Europe gets squeezed between these uh, in this, uh, in this power, great power competition. Christian, I mean, uh, any... Um any thoughts from Paris about the EU? I mean, it is in intriguing that we have a, you know, of, of all things, well, I mean, obviously the current incumbent of the White House and the leadership of the West is a freestanding issue that is a shadow over all the things we're discussing, really. But uh, any thoughts in from Paris and from the government there, as you analyse it, about the impact of different outcomes of the US presidential election on Brexit and COVID-19? Well, um, I, I, I very much agree with what has been said by uh, my, my, my two colleagues. The problem, if uh, Mr. Trump is re-elected, is uh, the question of how are we going to work with, uh, well, United States, which is, uh, well, <laughs> uh, still one of the most important power in the world. So uh, uh, we will be able to... Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, negotiate, we'll be able to uh, have United States present in uh, big deals when we have uh, shared interest, because we still have some sh shared interest with the US sometimes regarding other parts of the world. So, um, but, but, but that will not be very different from uh, what we already have with, uh, with, with Trump, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a real uh, change in, uh, well, the way we are doing diplomacy in Europe because, uh, well, we never have a United States like this in the, in the, in the past. Um, what I also think is, uh, 
probably will have uh, interest in in uh, in Europe to uh, to have a coherent uh, uh, policy vis-à-vis China. That's uh, that's an important issue uh, for um, well uh, strategic autonomy. And here the COVID uh, uh, nineteen was uh, a good uh, a good example. We uh, suddenly discovered that uh, well uh, we do not produce masks. Uh, in uh, in Europe, and if uh, if China doesn't sell them, well, we are totally we're totally lost. Um, but uh, also, we have to be we have to be cautious about uh, keeping a, 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 a European position vis-à-vis uh, well the important trade negotiations uh, with uh, with China, because all the strategy of China, of course, is to go bilaterally with a certain number of countries. Uh, promising investments, etc., etc. Uh, well, uh, promising also uh, the benefits of the Road and Belt initiative to, and a certain number of EU member states accepted. Well, of course, this is uh, this is a problem for 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 Europe. Uh, so, um, uh, US, yes, but uh, let's try to have a more coherent Chinese policy as well. Okay, right, we've got uh, just four minutes to go. So I want each of you briefly, if you will, in that uh, time before I thank everybody, um, uh, to say, as if, having you know, watched Brexit as analysts and experts and now seen this remarkable once in a lifetime, we hope, uh, COVID-19 impact overlay on it. What as analysts of public policy have you learned most about the way in which governments, EU corporately, individual states, UK, uh, respond to this kind of, in one case, a massive political emergency and then a sort of public health one on top of it. So what have we learned about government and its capacity to act? Uh, Sarah, why do you go first? I, I think that the first uh, the first point is that uh, we uh, will we are seeing how how small every one of the countries, even big countries, are in this world, uh, and in the capacity to address uh, such a big external shock. Um, there are no country that can handle this situation, and um, in Europe, on its own, and it's through collaboration that. Um, uh, you will see the most effective response. Uh, the necessary domestic responses uh, by each government, but certainly that currently um, governments in, in Europe are facing the same challenges and will only benefit from from, uh, from collaboration across the borders. And Christian, go in reverse order this time. Well, what's, what strikes me a lot in, uh, in the debate in my country is... Uh, the the power the scientists have uh, uh, now in the debate. So, uh, listening again, the scientists listening again, the experts. Uh, this is uh, this is something which is very very striking. And of course, for for the government is uh, well uh, being between the public opinion on one side and the scientists on the other side, and try uh, to uh, well make a bridge between. Uh, 
the, the, the two, but it's a sort of rehabilitation of, uh, of expertise. And that's, uh, this is striking. And of course, rehabilitation of expertise is the opposite of uh, populist ideology. So it's, it's an element of optimism for me. Good, good to have that on at the end. And um, Bridget? I think it's been the biggest display of public power that we've seen across the world in a very, very long time. And I think it will recalibrate state, public-private states, state market interests in the next phase. I think we've learned who the essential workers are. We've seen the exposure of uh, very large numbers in the gig economy. So I think the legacy will be profound and powerful but as with Christian, also optimistic. It can actually lead to some things that will be better. Very good. Well, that's, this is all getting very optimistic. Simon, uh, are you going to be optimistic <laughs> too? Well, I'm going I'm to start with Brexit, because I think Brexit was a, was a consequence of a failure of government to govern uh, and has been uh, a series of failures of government, which we have now... Um, uh, suffering from to that extent. So I think that was uh, a bad example of government. Um, uh, actually, I think that governments on COVID have uh, responded pretty well, actually, uh, in the crisis. You know, I mean, it's easy to criticise. Uh, and of course, some have done better than others. But I rather agree with what Bridget has said and what the others have said. You've seen some very strong examples of public policy being rapidly implemented and a sense of co community responsibility being channeled through government action. But the, the final point I would make is what I learned from both of them, actually, is it's really difficult for governments in democratic countries to plan ahead. Uh, so, you know, you're making forward plan and imagining change and being able to prepare for change is something which governments find very difficult. If we can improve that, we'll be all better off. OK, well, we will be better off uh, listening to the four of you this afternoon, I think. Um, so, um, Christian... Sarah, Bridget, Simon, thank you very much. And I, I'm not going to say, I'd just like to apologise to there was a list of others um, who were going to ask questions. We didn't have time. Maria Pavlova, Seema from UAL, Matthew Howard, a Winchester College student, Michael Dattar, uh, and others. So I can't go into all of you, but thank you for uh, putting your questions down. I hope most of them were actually largely addressed by uh, the speakers at another point of the afternoon. Um, I'd like to thank not only our speakers, but uh, Alan Revel and uh, colleagues at LSE Events, who've now had to start putting on even more complex events, but we can now get bigger audiences to them. So thank all of you. Uh, Rosie Hines, my, our colleague uh, in the European Institute and School of Public Policy, and uh, all at maximum nearly 500 of you who've joined us from around the world. So uh, do visit LSE's website to look at other events that are on offer. Um, and we'll be running more on Brexit and COVID-19 and, of course, all the other issues that the LSE covers over time. So uh, I wish all of you a uh, happy, prosperous and safe rest of the day and indeed week. Uh, and hope to see you all in this form or perhaps slightly more uh, back in the old distance, but nevertheless together uh, very soon. So thank you all. and. Uh, a very good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Bye.